Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm the pastor here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, glad to see all of you this morning. Um, I hope to be coherent. My, my family and I, we decided, my boys and I, that we were going to go to Tallahassee for the football game yesterday. And so we arrived back in the driveway at 11.45 last night. Um, and, but, but go Knowles, we won. It's a good thing, good deal. I'm sorry, oh, Savant, I'm sorry, David, I shouldn't bring that into the, the church. Uh, I apologize uh, about that, but I'm um, just so great to see you this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a series this fall in the book of Nehemiah in our Old Testament scriptures. It's the story of a man, Nehemiah, who was called to go back to his hometown, Jerusalem, to help rebuild the city's walls and to help rebuild the city, not only physically, but also spiritually. His specific job assignment is the city's walls to fortify them against the nations surrounding the city. The walls had been broken down for nearly 140 years. But as we saw last week, despite incredible opposition and also personal danger, Nehemiah is able to get the job done in 52 days. And it's a cause for great rejoicing in the city. And I don't know if you figured out that we try to piece together all the elements of, of our worship service, the call to worship and the assurance of pardon, the prayers and the songs. But, but we're, the theme we're going to deal with this morning is this theme of joy, of, of this being a joyous occasion for the people of God as their walls were refortified and rebuilt and Nehemiah gets the job done. But we come to the part of the story this morning where the focus of the rebuilding effort of the city of Jerusalem begins to turn a corner. So if you would come with me to Nehemiah chapter 8, if you have your Bible, let me say... Uh, I know that we print everything in this worship folder for you, and it's up here. And, and but I, I pray that we would not get out of the habit of bringing, you know, this this thing to church with us too. Uh, so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're in Nehemiah chapter eight. If not, it is printed uh, in the worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind you. We're going to read from this eighth chapter of Nehemiah, verses one through three, and then skipping down to verse five through verse twelve. Let's read together. And all the people gathered as one man into the square of the city before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. How about that for a church service? Now I lost my place. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse five. If I can find my way there. Sorry. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Pray for me right here. Also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is God's word. Nehemiah understands something. He understands that ultimately his mission involves more than just rebuilding walls, brick and mortar and stone. He understands that his mission, as, as God has sent him to the city, Jerusalem, is to rebuild lives. That the ultimate goal was not just to physically restore or rebuild the structures of the city, but to reconstitute the Jews living there as God's people. In other words, to recover the spiritual dynamics that lead to blessing and prosperity and peace. Or, in other words, it's not enough to build houses for Habitat for Humanity and to feed the hungry and to pass out pregnancy tests, as important as those things are, and to neglect people's spiritual condition in the process. It's not enough to concern ourselves just with the physical conditions of our city. We have to be concerned with the spiritual conditions of our city as well. And the Bible tells us that we should do these things in Jesus' name. We build, we rebuild walls in Jesus' name. We pass out pregnancy tests in Jesus' name. We do them to introduce people to their real need, not walls, not the improvement of their physical condition, but a Savior who can heal their hearts and rescue them from an eternal condemnation. And ultimately, cultural renewal, here's what we're learning in this passage and in this book, that ultimately, cultural renewal is not just a matter of, of social policies that advantage the poor and the needy, but of spiritual revival. And our dream is that we would see that come to happen among us and then through us in the city of Winter Haven and Polk County in our country and the world. See, God's strategy for accomplishing this in our city is very simple. If you look at the front of your worship folder with me, could you do that? You'll see there at the bottom of that worship folder that we've picked a, a, a scripture passage to be kind of a theme for this series in Nehemiah, and it's from Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus called the church a city on a hill. You see that? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We are a city within the city of Winter Haven, and Jesus says that our belief system and our values and our way of life is like a light that shines in the darkness and invites our friends and neighbors to a completely different way of understanding the world and of living in it. To love instead of to hate. To show hospitality instead of prejudice and racism. To generosity instead of greed. To kindness instead of selfishness and ultimately to joy instead of sadness and despair. The church is to be a city. The kind of human community that God had in mind when he created the man and the woman at the beginning of time to lead by example, or, or I love the phrase by Mohandas Gandhi, to become the change that we envision, to show the city of Winter Haven what the life we were, we were all made for looks like. And Jesus says that when the church lives this way, look, if you see there in Matthew 5, he says when the church lives this way, the city we live in can't help but take notice and be drawn away from sin and unbelief and into faith in Jesus. That's what we're praying for, that we would be such a powerful demonstration 
of his love and his grace in our city that the city would see and give glory to God. That's the mission. It's always been God's plan to save the world through a people. Christianity is not about personal fulfillment. That's something that's hard for us to understand because we're so overrun with individualism and utterly obsessed with the notion of private property and, and, um, and individual rights and personal freedom. But God doesn't think the way you and I do. And I'm, I'm reading a, bi- a book by a guy named, what's his name, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. And he says, just really simply, he says the Bible isn't addressed to a people. To, excuse me, he says the Bible isn't addressed to people. I did, it, I did it again. I can't get it right. The Bible isn't addressed to a person, but to a people. Does that make sense? The Bible isn't addressed to a person. It's addressed to a people. The Bible is the story of how God is creating for himself a people that will give their wholehearted allegiance to him and his purposes in the world. Now, the word we use to describe this relationship that we as a people experience with him is the word covenant. The Jews, you'll see here, were a covenant community. They were a people in covenant relationship with one another as they lived in covenant relationship with God. They'd enter into a special binding relationship with God in heaven, much like the binding of a man and a woman together in marriage. In Nehemiah 8 is what Bible scholars call a covenant renewal ceremony. Think about people who've been married for 25 or 30 years and they want to have a a marriage renewal ceremony where you go back and you do it again and you say all those things we promised one another all those years so long ago, they still apply. We're going to stand up in front of not necessarily our friends, maybe our kids this time and say, you know, we still believe uh, what we did so many years ago. And Israel was to be a holy people. They were to be different. They were to, to be different from all the nations around them. And the covenant that God had made with them was the sole ground of their self-understanding. They belonged to him. They were defined by his salvation. They were called to wholeheartedly adopt his agenda for the world. The problem was they kept forgetting this. And they kept thinking that they could live however they wanted to. And instead of embodying a new way of life, instead of being holy, they conformed themselves to the way of life of the peoples around them. And it's a problem for the church too. Um, Philip Yancey says that all too often the church holds up a mirror reflecting back to the society around it rather than a window revealing a different way, just like Israel. The church should be a window, not a mirror. We should be a window to a different way and not just a mirror reflecting back to the culture we live in all of its values and priorities and ways of life. But see, that happened to Israel. And so what happens is, is the Bible says that every so often there's this need for what is called a covenant renewal ceremony where you gather the people back together all in one place and you remind them of the special binding relationship that God has entered into with them as his people. Let's go back and let's remember all of the ways that he's called us to be a window. Confess all the ways we've become a mirror and move forward uh, to be faithful to the display of his greatness in our city, which is what he's called us to. And so this morning, we're going to look at just that. That's a long introduction, I realize. But what does it mean for us to be a covenant community of people who've been called together, much in the same way that these Jews were here in Ezra chapter 8, to stand in the presence of God and to hear from him again what it means that we are his covenant people? And what we're going to see is very three three things. Uh, it, there's always three things, isn't there? One of these days, I'm going to have to have two or one or something, but there seems to always be three. Um, first, it means that we're people who are defined by God's voice. And here's what that does. Because we're defined by God's voice, then secondly, it means we're, we're to be a people who, sh- who display a, a deep and sincere humility. But it's not a humility that's self-loathing and, and prone to despair. And so the third point is, is we're people then of, that are really 
captivated by gospel joy. So we're a people who are defined by his voice, which leads to a profound humility, not self-loathing, but ultimately to the call to display and to demonstrate this gospel joy. And those are the things we're going to talk about this morning. So let's start right there with what we mean by that we're a people defined by God's voice. If you see that there in your outline that I provided for you in your worship folder. Defined by God's voice. In the ancient covenant renewal ceremonies, the first thing that would happen was this. The law of God would be read to, to remind the people of, of who God was and of what he had done to rescue them and of the authority that he had over their life and what he commanded them to. And that's what defined them. They were defined by God's character, by his salvation, and by his authority over their lives and not the cultural practices and the idolatries of the Canaanite nations around them. In other words, the Canaanites might sacrifice their kids to Molech, the god, the, the god of that area, but not the Jews. They are not self-defined. They're defined by what God said, not what the nations around them did. But it's so easy to forget that over time, to become so inundated with cultural propaganda that you become disoriented and confused. And so the law was read. That's what we read here. The law was read so that God's people could reorient themselves to his voice. Now, this is really important for us as God's covenant people today to understand because ours is a very unique situation here in America. In our culture, the voice that defines our country is our voice. Unlike any other, really, unlike most countries in the world, you know, whose voice defines China? The premier's voice. Whose voice defines Venezuela? you have any doubt, read the news. I mean, every culture has a voice that defines the culture. But in our culture, the defining voice is our voice. That's why we vote and then we complain. And we hold our officials, our elected officials to account to accountability. And I want to say <laughs> I need to make a disclaimer. I'm all for democracy and I think it's wonderful. OK, but it's dangerous. And here's why it's dangerous, because the temptation is that we would begin to define ourselves and we begin to de deify ourselves in our own will, that we would become drunk with the sound of our own voice. Because, see, that was the issue way back in the beginning in the garden where the man and the woman walked and talked with God. Adam and Eve wanted to be self-defined, not defined by God's voice. The essence of the first sin was, I'm not, I will not be defined by what you say. I will be defined by what I think and what I say. And the value in our culture, that very value, is being exalted. Personal freedom, as wonderful as it is, has also become the vehicle that is driving our culture towards intellectual and moral relativism. Intellectual relativism, I decide for myself what truth is. You know, moral relativism, I decide for myself how I should live. My voice. And the problem of my deification, of my will. That's the problem in all of my life. That's where I get myself in trouble every time when I exalt my voice over the sound of other people's voices or God's voice ultimately. Do you understand? Do you understand the dynamic of the power of your voice in your life? Of being absolutely persuaded by your own opinions dangerous. So a bit of friendly counsel. You ought to have somebody in your life whose voice has veto power over your voice. I got an amen. Woo. 
you ought to have somebody in your life. And don't tell, don't tell me the Holy Spirit. I'm talking flesh and blood, friend, father, relative. You ought to have somebody in your life who has veto power over your voice. Here's how this relates to the mission we've been giving Given if we become that self-oriented, we'll begin to define cultural renewal in terms of it being somebody else's fault. Uh, that's the temptation we face right now. <laughs> the temptation right now is that for the next four years, half the country is going to blame everything that is wrong on the other half. I mean, all this talk of uniting the country is ridiculous. The vote was 52 to 46 percent. You know, but sin is not a matter of what the Democrats are going to do to the Republicans. The real problem is that we're all egotistical. We love the sound of our voice more than we love the sound of our maker's voice. And when we live that way, devastation and wreckage are the result. And so all that we long to see happen in our city, in our nation, in our world, in our lives, it's not a matter of who's in office or what political party is in power or what policies they put into place. It's always about what God is doing in us. Nehemiah reports, if you'll look here in verse 1, Nehemiah reports, that all God's people gathered together as one man, it says there in verse 1, in God's presence to hear God's voice. And the fact, in fact, that phrase, all the people, as one man, all the people, it's used nine times in these verses. This is a theme. The people are called together and are unified in their intent and their mission. And that's God's strategy for renewing a city. Here it is. The key to spiritual and cultural renewal of the city is God's people unified as one man defined by God's voice. That's it. That's the key. That we would be a people unified as one man and defined by his voice. See, there's a unity that exists between you and I if we share faith in Jesus because we all bow the knee to the same voice. And that's the key, that we would be as one man just like the early church in Acts chapter 4, where we read they were of one heart and one soul. If we all bow the knee to the same voice, and the issue then is whether we're willing to hear his voice and submit to it in our, in our lives, whether we're, whether we're going to continue to elevate our own opinions, our own selfish agendas, or whether we're willing to put ourselves under his voice and really listen and hear. And so I think I've given you three practical considerations as we work through this. A posture, a practice, and a product. And so let's just really quickly walk through those three things. As we think about what it means for us to be a people who are defined by his voice. First, I'd like for you to see that there's a, that there's a the correct posture that we really take notice of here in these, in these verses. And the posture you see it in verse, in verse um, 5. Look at verse 5 with me again. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. Now, we used to do this in the Baptist church I grew up in, <laughs> uh, but, but it's fallen out of practice. Uh, the people stood as a sign of respect and reverence for, for hearing the words of this book because they understood. That the people understood that the law, the book of the law that was being read over them were the very words of God. Which is why when I read the scripture and I finish the scripture reading, do you, have you noticed what I say? This is God's word. So everything before that statement, God's word. Everything after that statement, Drew's word. Big difference. Right? These are the very words of God. And so the posture, there's this posture of respect 
in admiration and reverence. I, I'm going to pick, I, I read a book not long ago that's a very popular book out right now. It's a book by, um, called The Shack. Um, and, and, I, and I think, I mean, I, I would encourage you, read it, especially if you've been in the church for a long time. Uh, I think it'd be really, really helpful to you. But I do have some issues, and I picked, I picked a quote. Do we have it? Um, here's a quote by the, the lead character in that book. His name is Mac. And I just want you to, to, to listen, very, listen very carefully to the way that the Scripture is characterized in, these, in, in, in this quote from this man, Mac, in this book. Because I think it's true of the dominant assumption of people in our culture. Mac, um, the, the, here, here's, how, here's how it goes. In seminary, Mac had been taught that God had completely stopped any overt communication with moderns, preferring to have them only listen to and follow sacred scripture, properly interpreted, of course. God's voice had been reduced to paper, and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. It seemed that direct communication with God was something exclusively for the ancients and uncivilized, while educated Westerners access to God was mediated and controlled by the intelligentsia. Nobody wanted God in a box, just in a book, especially an expensive one bound in leather with glit edges. Or was that gilt edges? Now, apart from the last phrase, which I find sappy, quite honestly, um, his point's well taken. But be very careful. Be very careful because there's an undertone. There's an undertone. The Bible's second rate. It's not direct communication. It's somehow insufficient. We need something more. The Bible itself claims something entirely different. These are the very words of God. And we should treat them as such. The Bible is God's self-revelation. God has spoken. We can know his will. And so the people stand, and that's the correct posture. But look, there's a practice. And if you look in verse 3, I just want you, I'm just picking some things out here. I mean, in verse 3, we read, and, and, and as we read it, from facing the square between the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And look at this phrase, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. The second thing here, Nehemiah says they were attentive. They listened carefully. They listened intently. They paid attention as if their very life depended on it. So not only do we need to cultivate the right posture, but also the right practice to develop habits of being attentive to God's voice in the Scriptures. And this is why that we as a church are committed to reading the Bible together. Greg Ogden, who, who's a guy who's written some books on discipleship, has this great phrase. He says, Americans revere their Bibles. They just don't read them. And so if you'll look at your worship folder, again, I'm really using the worship folder this morning, but if you'll see the inside of this tear out, you'll see what we call community Bible reading. And this is a Bible reading plan that we are committed to as a church, especially in our small group structures, that there's an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading on a daily basis. Or if you really want to aspire to super saint stature, super saint stature, you can read the Bible in one year, and you, and you can do four readings a day, one from the, old, one from the new and three from the old. Um, but we are committed to, and you, there's a website, www.joincbr.com, we are committed to being a people who intently read the scriptures together in community. And the method we've chosen to do that is by this Bible reading plan, which, which came out of our mother church in Lakeland, Trinity Presbyterian Church, because we understand that there's a call here. If we are going to be a people that lead our city in cultural and spiritual renewal, we'll have to be a people who hear God's voice and obey, who are attentive to his voice. 
And the dominant spiritualities that have captivated our culture are full of searches for extraordinary spiritual experiences, not ordinary day-to-day spiritual practices like Bible reading that take discipline and intentionality. But we want to be a people who read His Word. But there's a third thing, there's a product. Where does this scene take place? And if you look in verse 1 and then again in verse 3, you'll see that all of this is happening at the city gate. And the city gate in that time was the center of community life and commerce and politics. And so in other words, what, 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 what the goal has to be for us is that we have to take what we're hearing from God, what we're learning from Him as we read uh, the, the, the Bible together, is we have to take it into the, the city community life and commerce and politics and let God's Word begin to dominate and influence all the different sectors of our city. But that's the product. That's the goal. That's what it means ultimately for us to be a people who are defined by His voice so God's people is first, the people who are defined by God's voice. Now, the next two are going to go a lot quicker. So Nehemiah gathers in the city square, and Ezra stands up to read from the law of God, and he reads from morning until the middle of the afternoon. Do you hear that, teenagers? From morning until the middle of the afternoon. If you have iTunes and you go home and download the scriptures, if you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I think it's something like 12 hours it takes to read those. 12 hours. So don't complain about 30 minutes. Right? Look at the way the crowd responds. 12 hours. And then in verse 6, Ezra blesses the Lord. He blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. The, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And I put in my notes, when you read the Bible, how do you respond emotionally? Does it move you like that? people in this passage are undone. They're humbled. They say, Amen, Amen. It means it's true. It's true. And we're told, Ezra's reading from the book of the law, probably Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, those really weird books at the beginning of the Bible. And, and, and it's the part of the Bible where God lays out all the laws and the rules that he expects his people to follow. And if you've ever read that part of the Bible, you know that you don't have to read long before you're confronted with your sin and your selfishness. And that's exactly what these people what happens to these people when they hear God's voice and it puts them on their face? They say, we're guilty, we're broken, we're powerless. Ezra reads the law and the people say, amen, amen, it's true, it's true. God is good and we are evil. He is generous and we have been selfish. He's compassionate and we have been hard-hearted. And they realize how far they've fallen short of what God has commanded and how desperately broken they are and how powerless they are to change anything. And so they get down on their knees and they put their face to the ground as, as if to say, we are at your mercy. You are great. We are guilty. There's no other way to be in the presence of one so beautiful and so great. It's a picture of humility. And that's the second point in your outline. It's a picture of being undone by the sight of our own sin. And it's good. It's healthy. And it's appropriate. We need to feel the weight of our sin. We need to feel our need and be desperate for God to come and save us. God's people. His covenant community are the people who have been confronted with God's greatness and their own smallness and who live not making a big deal out of themselves, but who live making a big deal out of him. That's humility. But I have to be honest with you, what I find to be true of most Christians is not uh, humility as it's characterized here. It's one of two things. It seems that Christians 
that people who claim to be followers of Jesus seem to fall off into one of two different directions. On one side, I find a lot of people who say they're, they're followers of Jesus who are arrogant and self-righteous. But then on the other side, I find a lot of people who follow Jesus who seem to be sinking into despair and self-loathing. And humility is the opposite of both of those. And here's the diagnostic. If either of them, if either arrogance and self-righteousness or self-pity and, and self-loathing, if either of them are the ground note of your life, then it's not humility, it's actually selfishness. And you might be religious, but is your hope really in God, in Jesus, in his work to save you? That's the question, because the two are different things. So self-righteousness, right? Self-righteousness and arrogance should be completely absent in our lives, but they're not. Christians are smug, we're proud, we're condescending, and it makes me sick, quite honestly. But self-righteousness is the indicator light that I'm making a big deal out of myself. And not making a big deal out of him because when I'm self-righteous, I'm making a big deal out of my obedience and my success and my faithfulness. I'm making a big deal out of me. I feel really good about me. But I'm completely self-oriented. But think about the other, despair. You see, neither should we live in despair and self-loathing because all of my life as a Christian, there's been this underlying guilt that permeated everything in my life, my relationships, the way I made decisions. Um, but it's not humility. It's not humility. It's a subtle way of making a big deal out of myself and not making a big deal out of him because the guilt and the despair is there because I'm making a big deal out of my sin, my disobedience, and my weakness. I feel bad about me. But still, I'm making a big deal out of me. You see, we're that egotistical. And the danger in what we would call religion is that it feeds this egotism just as much as secularism does. The secularist, the non-religious person says, just feel your way to God. The rules don't really matter. But religion is very similar. Religion says the false assumption, at least the false assumption behind religion is that a relationship with God is a matter of our performance, of doing the right things or of saying the right things so that God will like me. But it's focused on me. It's man-centered. But what we learn here is that Christianity is something entirely different from both of those things. And according to Christianity, a relationship with God is not primarily a matter of what we do, but of what he has done to save us. Christianity is focused on Jesus. It's God-centered, not man-centered. And so, here's how you know. Are you ready for the test? Here's how you know whether you're a Christian or just religious. Here's how you know whether it's humility or whether you've fallen in one of these two pits, either self-righteousness and arrogance or self-loathing and self-pity. Here's how you know. Do you live with joy? Is the joy of the Lord the song of your life or is it self-pity or the record of your accomplishments? You see, the wonder of Christianity is that it produces people who are humble, not arrogant and condescending and self-righteous, humble people, but not guilt-loading and not self-loathing either. There's humility, but there's also great joy. There's a deep sense of security in God's love and acceptance. Now, how is that? I mean, that's really, that's really the crux of this passage. The law of God reveals sin. And when confronted with the reality of their sin, a religious person does one of two things. Either they set out to prove God wrong by trying harder, or they sink into despair because the solution in either case is, is their spiritual performance. But the gospel produces a different reaction. When we, we are con can be confronted with our sin and still rejoice because we understand we're not saved through our obedience. We're saved through Jesus' obedience. And that's what happens here. Look here in this passage. It's so great. The people of God hear God's voice.
They fall on their faces and begin to weep. But here's where it gets interesting. Look what Nehemiah does and the other leaders. What do they do? They tell the people, don't do that. Don't weep. Celebrate. Now, this is a methodology for doing church. I have a friend who used to say, you know, you haven't really been to church unless you feel like somebody beat you up. And there's this whole methodology of doing church in Christianity where we think really the, the goal is that people would leave feeling beat up. But, but, um, but, but unfortunately, it doesn't square with this. And Nehemiah comes and says, don't weep. Don't be sad. Celebrate. And what's interesting is in the next chapter, he says, weep. But for now, he says, not yet. He says, before that, we have to celebrate. And so in verse 10, and you need to see this because we need to figure out a way to put this in our little Christian box. He says, go your way, eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for the day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The people are confronted with God's greatness and their own failures and sin, and yet Nehemiah calls them to a celebration. And just in case you didn't figure it out, the fat and the sweet wine, that's God's way of saying go out to dinner, get an appetizer, have a glass of wine, get steak for dinner, and don't forget to order dessert. Eat the best, drink the sweetest. That's what he's saying. That's what, hear this, that's what they're being commanded to do. So let me get this straight. God is great. We're guilty. Let's party. I mean, how's that work? I mean, do you hear that? God is great. I'm guilty. Let's celebrate. That's the gospel. That's what Jack Miller used to say. Cheer up. You're far worse than you think you are. You say, how does that work? I mean, how does that work? You have to understand that your relationship with God is not based upon your performance, but upon his mercy. See, that's what's happening. The Jews are being reminded that they are a redeemed community, that God has acted to save them, and that the appropriate response is humility, of course, but also joy. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's a famous phrase. Uh, and it's thrown around in Christian circles. But I don't think any of us know what it means. It's become platitudinous. Meaningless. Sappy spirituality. And it's always confused me because I've not been able to figure out what it means. The joy of the Lord, what is that? And how is it my strength? And so in conclusion, let's answer those two questions. You see, the joy of the Lord was the joy that each of the Israelites was to feel at the festivals commemorating God's saving acts. And your call to worship. It may be a strange passage to you, but in Deuteronomy, what God is saying is, is a part of the regular ordering of God, the life of God's people was the gathering together to throw a huge party to celebrate God's saving acts. And celebrating and entering into the joy of God's people as they celebrated his salvation by eating the fat and drinking the sweet wine. It was a way of identifying oneself with God's salvation. It was a way of saying, I belong to this people that God is saving. Nehemiah says, don't weep, don't be afraid. You're God's people. He's working to save you. Celebrate and rejoice. His salvation is your strength, your protection. The solution to their sin was not that they would work harder to make themselves presentable. It was the hope that God would forgive. And all who had that hope were protected from the law's demands and condemnation. The joy of the Lord was their strength it means their protection because in the celebration was contained the promise of salvation for all who would participate, that God would come and deal with sin. And ultimately, that's what we believe he did in Jesus. That God can't just overlook sin. But because he's holy, there's an obedience that's required of us, which leaves just two options. 
Number one, option number one, that he could require it of us, which would only spell curse. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. Or number two, he could require it of another. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus came into, into the world. He lived the life we should have lived so that when we put our faith in him, his record of obedience is credited to us. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus not only went to the cross to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven, he lived a life of perfect obedience so that we could be counted righteous before God and accepted and loved by him. First, 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if your faith is in Jesus, and if your boast is in the cross, and Jesus' work on your behalf and not your record, then he is your strength, your protection. Against all the judgments and accusations the law might make, if your faith is in Jesus, you're not only forgiven, you're beautiful, you're holy, you're accepted, perfect. God loves you just as he loves Jesus, and you've done nothing to earn it or deserve his love. You can do nothing to forfeit it. It is pure grace, 100% the gift of God. Now, isn't that the most marvelous thing we've ever heard? Let's party. Y'all are laughing. It's great, man. I'm not So the Bible says joy is the fruit of God's spirit. You see, what Nehemiah is calling the people to in these verses is to the celebration of the special covenant relationship that we enjoy with God, a relationship that is based upon his love, not our obedience. And no matter how much there is in us that is offensive to be gloomy, to be afraid, to be aloof or distant or wracked with doubt or insecurity or any other response other than joy is inappropriate because it is to act as if the relationship is still in doubt. As if I still have to prove myself. But in Jesus, the verdict is in. My salvation is secure. And so now, there's a joy that permeates and pervades all of my obedience to all the commands that he calls me to. So you see, the church is, number one, defined by God's voice, not the dominant cultural voice. Number two, churches are people possessing a deep humility, not self-righteousness, because it's not our obedience, but Jesus's. Our spiritual accomplishments don't qualify us for God's love, but not despair because it's not our failures. Our failures don't disqualify us. But number three, we're people who exhibit a deep, abiding joy. Derek Kidner, he's written a great commentary on Nehemiah. says, holiness and gloom go ill together. Holiness and gloom go ill together. I like that. In the gospel, we are completely secure in the Father's love. There is no accusation that can come against us. Jesus is our protection. There's no need to be fretful or anxious or afraid or feel doubt. Only joy that God would love us, love one such as me, and do such a wonderful work to make me his. That's cause for great joy. And it's the joy that our city so desperately longs for and needs to come in contact with. God is great. We are guilty. Let's party because Jesus is a wonderful Savior. He's a Savior of sinners like us. So let's pray. Um, what wonderful news we find in your word, Father. Uh, of, of your working to come and make us a people of your own, that you would celebrate us, um, even being the sinners that we are, because of the work of your Son on our behalf, that there is love and acceptance and forgiveness for us if we put our faith in him, because you are one who loves um, to be known as a friend of sinners. What joy. Forgive us. Forgive us for, lack, for lacking the joy that is the only way that should be truly uh, that, that we should truly celebrate all that you've done to save us. Forgive us that we are gloomy, uh, that, we are, that we are given to self-righteousness, that we are given to despair. And come, Holy Spirit, inform in us 
uh, this fruit of joy, that it might um, multiply itself, not only into the joy of those in this room, but into the joy of this city who so desperately needs to know of the one who can mend hearts, save souls, repair lives. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. God is great. Amen. I want to make sure that you know on the back of your worship folder, there is a series of announcements that you pay attention. We're trying to figure out how to communicate information. I know we're not doing that really well still. Um, But know that this Wednesday night, we are gathering together to have a meal together. I can't promise fat and sweet wine, um, but we are going to have a good time anyway. It's at our offices, which are located uh, on First Street. If you you, uh, want to come to that, we're going to gather together, uh, talk about our vision a little bit, and be together. Now, it's not a very big room. Um, so if you think you might come, if you would email me, my email address is just Drew at RedeemerWinterHaven.org uh, and let me know so we can make preparations for that. Um, but, but be looking at things on the back of there so you can know kind of what's going on. Um, we are people who, who don't take lightly what God has called us to. Obedience is not optional. We believe that, that he is our king and we must follow his every command. And yet there's a character uh, to our obedience that is full of joy. And so a philosophy of ministry A man named Shane Claiborne, this is his philosophy of ministry, which really I've adopted as my own in many ways. But here's how he describes what he understands his mission to be. Ready? This is a group that he's a part of called The Simple Way. He says, once there was a small group of kids who decided to go to a park in the middle of the city and dance and play and laugh and twirl. And as they played in the park, they thought that maybe another child would pass by and see them. And maybe that child would think and it looked like fun and even decide to join them. And then maybe another would. And then maybe a businessman would hear from his skyscraper. Or maybe he would look out the window. And maybe he would see them playing and lay down his papers and come down. And maybe they could teach him to dance. And then maybe another businessman would walk by. And he would take off his tie and toss aside his briefcase and dance and play. And maybe the whole city would join the dance. And maybe even the whole world. That's what we're called to. And so go and dance. Because as you go... The promise, if your faith is in Jesus, the promise of the Father's favor is upon you. Receive that promise in the words of this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.